This is an Occult Confessions special report, the second of a three-part series on the plague. Today's episode, Julian of Norwich and the Black Death. In time of pandemic, people often look to ascribe supernatural blame and guilt. Some promote the notion that we are being punished by God. In my own social media feeds, I've seen a passage from the Book of Solomon making its way around, implying that God is displeased with our inadequate devotion and prayer. In Zimbabwe, Defense Minister Opa Mochinguri claimed the virus was God's punishment on the West for imposing sanctions against his country. In America, megachurch pastor Robert Jeffress asked rhetorically whether the coronavirus was a judgment of God. Not to ruin the surprise, but the answer is yes. Although, rest assured, the end times haven't come yet because the Antichrist, as we all well know, has not been identified. Evangelist, conspiracy theorist, and Floridian Rick Wiles has called COVID-19 a death angel and said in the early days of the outbreak that it would end if China accepted Jesus and, more recently, that the disease is a punishment for LGBT sin. The notion of plague as a divine punishment was an ancient one. The Assyrians believed that demons of disease rose out of the soil. They had two demons specific to epidemics. Namtar was the demon of the plague, and Ashaku was the demon of the wasting disease. The ancient Greeks had the Nosoi, spirits of disease who escaped from Pandora's jar. The Romans called the Nosoi the Morbus and included among them pestis, or pestilence, and maces, or wasting. An odd inspiration for the name of a department store, but... Now you know. Today, Westerners most identify the concept of plague as divine punishment with the Yahweh of Genesis, namely the ten plagues of Egypt, which is the exact number of plagues you can find in a Miami hotel room at spring break. Zing. Although those kids probably did spread the coronavirus between them and bring it home with them, so not so funny right now. The ten plagues were probably originally only seven, with lice, boils, and three days of darkness being added afterward. Of the original seven, only the last plague, the killing of the firstborn, actually resembles a pandemic, and God provides a supernatural means of staving it off, instructing the Jews to paint lamb's blood on their doors so that the pestilence might pass by. The others were environmental, water to blood, frogs, flies, livestock disease, hail, and locusts. During Europe's Black Death, which was a pandemic of bubonic plague in the 14th century that killed around half of the people it infected, many wondered if they were being visited by God's wrath, much like the Egyptians. Clement VI, who was pope at the time of the Black Death, argued that the plague was a punishment from God. Astrologers, including Johannes de Muris, concluded that the conjunction of Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars in 1341 was to blame. Many in Europe blamed the Jews. In this view, God was angry with the Christians for failing to expel the Jews who refused to convert to Christianity. Hundreds of Jews were burned in a house constructed for that purpose in Basel, Switzerland. In Strasbourg, 2,000 were burned at the stake. 
In Germany, a community of Jews in Mainz decided to land the first punch and killed 200 Christians. The Christians responded with a horrific retaliation, murdering 12,000 Jews. Perhaps the greatest evidence of the medieval Christians' view that the Black Death was God's punishment came in the form of the procession of flagellants. The Black Death flagellants were a revival of a movement that first began a hundred years earlier in central Italy. The Black Death flagellants were rooted in the Germanic states, marching through Austria, Hungary, Germany, Bohemia, and the surrounding region. They would come into the center of a town, moving two by two, stripped to the waist, and beat themselves with a leather thong, praying for God's mercy on all sinners, while their audience wept for the bitter display of their suffering. They stayed one night, and then moved on to the next town. Their self-flagellation went on for thirty-three days, in honor of the thirty-three years of Jesus of Nazareth's life. Many, if not most, medieval Christians believed the plague was a sign of God's wrath, and yet, in a near-death vision, one unassuming anchoress in the city of Norwich said no. God was not angry with his people. Despite all the death and fear raging across Eurasia, she said, God loves us, and all will be well. My name is... Rob C. Thompson, I am the supreme hierophant of our secret order of alchemical actors, coming to you from my home uh, in quarantine in the great state of Maryland, which is well ahead of the curve, I think, when it comes to quarantining people. We are quite serious here in Maryland, or at least our government is. Um, and I have been in quarantine now for two weeks. Uh, I, not in, All of us are in quarantine, I suppose, uh, so I'm not uh, uniquely exposed uh, to the virus. Uh, everyone in the state pretty much is is holed up and uh, sheltering in place, more or less. Um, so uh, here, here here we are. <laughs> uh, the last time I recorded, uh, which is not actually the last time I came to you, I was with my neighbor Matt. Um, but now everyone is being encouraged uh, not to gather, uh, get together at all. This is, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, the second part of our plague series. We I'm, I'm planning to go uh, to three episodes. I hope to be able to uh, get you uh, what would amount to when I'm done a straight six weeks of weekly episodes. Uh, this is not easy. <laughs> um, the research is uh, painstaking for me. Uh, I spend a lot of time researching these, and I do personally edit uh, and assemble the episodes. Um, so, so it's a, a lot of extra work. Uh, but, but I do want to tell you all this is a labor of love, uh, and and I think that this is a way that uh, I can make some small contribution as we pull together in this uh, difficult time uh, by keeping you all company. Uh, so, on that order, uh, I want to mention um, that we've got a lot going on to keep people busy online. Uh, Shannon uh, Landers, our, our Instaquisitor, and, and Olivia Litteral, our Grandmaster, uh, they have been uh, very busy on the interwebs, and, and they're not alone. Uh, Aubrey Radford, our resident werewolf, uh, she posted a, a survivor's guide for people who are also werewolves, uh, and we've got uh, other alchemical actors uh, making art and, and all sorts of fun stuff going on. And uh, we've been hearing from a lot of you, and, and that's great. Uh, this is not just for you all, this is also for us. 
uh, this is a way of pulling the community uh, that Occult Confessions has uh, gathered uh, around itself, um, both both us, the alchemical actors, and uh, you all, our confessors, uh, pulling together and uh, helping each other feel a little bit less alone uh, in this time, because that's a, it's a great danger. Uh, certainly the virus is very dangerous, uh, and social distancing is, is probably, from, from what the experts tell us, the best solution. But uh, social distancing itself has its drawbacks, um, and, and we would like to uh, do our best both for ourselves and, and for you guys to try to form a community online as best as we're able to. So, so by all means, reach out to us. Um, we'll respond to your message. We'll, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, let's try and keep the community going here. We are publishing episodes, as I mentioned, every week, uh, and those episodes will be alternating uh, between our Plague Specials, uh, which is, this, this, as I mentioned, the second of three, with our regular regular episode. So last week you heard the Rosicrucians, uh, and next week we're going to just carry on with our regular conspiracy series, um, and that's going to be our Protocols of the Elders of Zion episode, and, and we are going to carry on as, as well as we're able to with the regular business of the podcast, just inserting these bonus episodes uh, for you all between the, the regular posts. As I mentioned, everyone is in quarantine, uh, or social distanced, or however you want to think about it. Um, but we do have alchemical actors working with us remotely today. I've got Olivia Literal, uh, our grandmaster. She is uh, doing the voice of Julian of Norwich for us today. Uh, by the way, uh, special thanks to our friend, uh, our UK friend Tom on Instagram, uh, who, who provides uh, some <laughs> very valuable UK pronunciations for me. Uh, otherwise, I would be totally uh, out to see when it comes to pronouncing Norwich, which looks like Norwich, uh, for those of you who uh, find look this up online. Uh, I understand some of you may be thinking, well, why don't you use uh, Zoom or, or one of these other things? Uh, I, I do think we sacrifice a lot in audio quality when you do that, and uh, certainly you're tuning in for an experience that uh, is, is going to be a story that <laughs> you can uh, enjoy and wrap your head around. You're not tuning in uh, to hear a botched version of the sort of, uh, those of you who are working from home, the, the Zoom meetings that that you're having to have as part of your daily life. That's, that's not, not what you want out of a podcast, I assume. We, the members of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. All right, I would like to give a shout out to two new patrons, especially in this time of uh, economic hardship. Uh, we really appreciate uh, new folks joining us. Uh, and, and I want to remind everyone that uh, for as little as $1, uh, you can have access to like a dozen hours of content. So if you're feeling alone and uh, sort of reluctant to, uh, I don't know, buy one of those expensive subscriptions to one thing or another, there's quite a bit of content out there uh, over on our Patreon just for one buck. Uh, but Gurren T and Aaron S joined at slightly higher levels, and uh, we're, we're very grateful to you guys, gals, folks, for joining us. Um, so thank you, Gurren T and Aaron S. Oh, just a fair note of warning uh, before we get into this today. We're going to be talking about Jesus quite a bit today, which I know can be off-putting for many of my listeners who are refugees from the West's most dominant religious tradition. But Julian's characterization of Jesus is compelling, and I think very appealing for believers of various traditions. We have to keep in mind that Roman Catholic Christianity was Julian's only paradigm for a spiritual life, but her unique path 
within that paradigm is what makes her so interesting and so comforting in our time of plague. Not to mention the fact that the medieval church is super fascinating, uh, but if that's not enough to persuade you, I can promise the following words will be spoken in today's episode. Stigmata, schism, sodomy, seven, deadly, sins, inferno, antichrist, anti-pope, hanged, drawn, quartered, hagioscope, and hazelnut. Let's get started on the topic of love and wrath. On the 13th of May, 1373, 30-year-old Julian was in her death throes. She'd been suffering from an unidentifiable illness for seven days. On the fourth night, she'd taken her last rites, but she lingered two more days and two more nights. On the seventh night, she was close to death, but still, she lived on. On the eighth day, the local curate arrived and held out a crucifix in front of her to comfort her in what he expected would be her dying minutes. In that moment, Julian was filled with a strange sensation and felt that she was at the end. She later wrote in her 16 Revelations of Divine Love. After this, the upper part of my body began to die, so far forth that scarcely I had any feeling, with shortness of breath. And then I weaned in sooth to have passed. And in this moment, suddenly all my pain was taken from me, and I was as whole as I ever was before. I marveled at this sudden change, for me thought it was a privy working of God and not of nature. Her eyes fixed on the face of the crucified Christ, and the room grew dark around her, until all she could see was herself and the crucifix. She desired to suffer with Christ and to be filled with compassion. She thought she saw drops of blood begin to drip from the head of the otherwise inanimate image of Christ, from the places on his head where his crown of thorns dug into the skin and the scalp. At this moment, her visions, or what she called her showing, divine revelations from God, commenced. As the vision unfolded, the blood from under the crown of thorns poured faster and thicker, coming like the drops of water that fall off the eaves of a house after a great shower, uh, this in Julian's own words, uh, and then later, in great torrents, so that she wondered how the blood didn't soak through her bed. In her vision, Jesus revealed a profound truth to Julian, a truth that was far from intuitive in a time of war, plague, and riot. God told her, All is well, and all shall be well. This must have been difficult for Julian to grasp, given the tumultuous times in which she lived. Her home city of Norwich had suffered two bouts of plague in the last decade, in 1362, and then again seven years later in 1369. The most recent epidemic had culminated in riots in which the rebels, driven by famine and unfair taxation, looted the city, the churches, and the monasteries. In 1378, the Western Schism would divide the Roman Catholic Church in two parts, with as many as three men claiming the title of Pope and excommunicating each other. 
Economic struggles brought on in part by the Hundred Years' War would result in civil war among the English and the French, and in 1381 the poor, driven by deep economic disparity and heavy taxation from the war with France, would set fire to the homes of the wealthy during the English peasants' revolt. But Julian, recovered from her illness, would rise from her sickbed with Jesus Christ's message to her, and a mission to share it with the world. In one of the first books in English written by a woman, Julian would record her sixteen revelations, and in them Jesus' promise to her, It behoved that there should be sin, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. In her revelations, Julian, today called Saint Julian, although she has never been formally beatified, or Mother Julian because she spent at least part of her life as an anchoress, Julian, a true and faithful and orthodox member of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, says at least two shocking things about the nature of God and God's relationship to creation. The first is that the Christian God is not a wrathful God. Well, not a wrathful God. The work of the church certainly seemed to suggest otherwise, particularly at this time period. The office of the Holy Inquisition began in France in the 1250s to try and execute a heretical sect called the Cathars, which we've mentioned in other episodes. By the 16th century, the torture and trial of innocent women and some men as witches would become a roving menace across the face of the continent. The Inquisition stayed out of England during the medieval period, but both Lollards and Jews were routinely persecuted on English soil. The Lollards were persecuted for heresy, and the Jews were persecuted for heresy. In 1290, the Jews were driven off the island. The English would also be responsible for burning the French St. Joan of Arc in 1431, at the end, or just after the end, of Mother Julian's life. And I haven't even begun to talk about the Church Militant, or its holy crusades against Muslims, pagans, and heretics. Perhaps more than at any other point in its history, the Church during the medieval period was committed to the execution of anyone who disagreed with its belief system, whether in great ways or small. These heretics and enemies of Christ were blamed for plagues, famines, wars, and pestilences, and driven off or burned for their supposed role in inciting God's wrath against Europe. The Bishop of Norwich during Julian's lifetime, Henry Le Dispenser, known as the Fighting Bishop, See, I'm guessing at the pronunciation here, i got to be honest. Henri Le Dispenser suggests uh, well, that would be a French pronunciation, but he's a British guy of uh, sort of French, northern French ancestry, so it could very well just be Henri Le Dispenser. Anyway, he was living a living incarnation of the wrathful church, our friend Henry here. He was the grandson of Hugh Le Dispenser, who had been Edward II's close advisor and possibly his lover. Henry was appointed the Bishop of Norwich in 1370, 
1381, Dispenser played a key role in defeating the rebels in Norwich during the Peasants' Revolt. The rebellion had started in London, where the peasants managed to capture the Tower of London but ended when their leader, Wat Tyler, was killed. In Norwich, the peasant rebels destroyed taxation records and court documents and menaced landholders. When the rebellion broke out, Dispenser was away at his manor a hundred miles from the city of Norwich. He immediately armed himself and began the return journey, bringing along a fighting force of... eight. But, as Dispenser and his eight friends went along, people joined them, anxious to aid the bishop against the rebels. Dispenser arrived in Norwich with a fairly sizable force which he led into combat personally and engaged in hand-to-hand fighting with the rebels. Let me remind you, this is a bishop of the church. Ultimately, the bishop's force overpowered the rebels and Dispenser had their leader, a dyer named Geoffrey Litster, hanged, drawn, and quartered. Dispenser went on to fight against the French anti-pope Clement VII during the Western Schism. Uh, Now's as good a time as any to figure out what exactly a Western Schism is, and for that matter, an anti-pope. The Schism was a source of wrath on all sides of the Church. The Western Schism was not the Great Schism uh, that that you might be thinking of when I say the word Schism, and uh, if you know anything about the history of the Church or or of Europe, the Great Schism uh, was the separation of the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Churches, and that happened uh, a few centuries earlier. Uh, The Western Schism was a product of political wrangling between Italian and French cardinals in the College of Cardinals and the, if I'm being honest, general unpopularity of Urban VI. Uh, Cardinals just didn't like hanging out with him, they didn't like to hear from him, and he was trying to take away their cool stuff. So Urban had been elected when a mob gathered around the cardinals in Rome and demanded that they elect a Roman Pope. So this is literally a mob threatening the College of Cardinals. For the previous 67 years, the Pope had resided at Avignon, going back to Clement V and Boniface VIII's conflict with Philippe the Fair. Check in with our Templar episode for more on that. Pope Urban moved the papal court back to Italy, Uh, But he was also, as I mentioned, kind of a dick. So the French cardinals got together, invited Urban to join them, and this may have been because they wanted to murder him. We don't really know, because he he didn't go. Uh, When he didn't show up, though, they named their own French pope. So I guess they just acted as if they had murdered him. Uh, And this was, uh, this French pope, it was the person who came to be known as the anti-pope, Clement VII. Defending Urban, Catherine of Siena called the cardinals a bunch of devils, and the French cardinals responded in French. And things went on more or less like that until 1417. While this was all sorts of ridiculous, coupled with the Hundred Years' War between France and England, the movement of the Black Death around Europe and the rounds of riots brought on by economic hardship, the Western Schism really contributed to the medieval person's reasonable impression that civilization was a complete and total mess. So, uh, the Schism sounds, you know, it's like politics and it's a bit silly, but 
it, when you put it with all that other stuff, it's not just silly. It, it, it's it, you feel right if you're if you're living in 1350, you feel like the world is falling apart around you. Maybe a feeling some folks are having right now as the world shuts down in order to stave off this virus. The schism showed that the church itself was not above this chaos. So the church of the spirit, right, not of the temporal realm, is falling into these political infighting squabbles, much like the the temporal lords and kings and, and the peasants and, and, and all these folks are just at war with each other. Everyone's fighting over everything. And it further sullied the church's already tarnished reputation as an arbiter of high-minded spiritual truth. We also have to bear in mind that, you know, following Boniface, the Eighth and, and on the scandal with Philippe the Fair, all that stuff, and then the fall of the Templars, the church itself is on the decline uh, from a, a broad cultural standpoint. The Renaissance is coming, and the Renaissance, uh, while it's, it makes all, there's all sorts of super cool art, and a lot of that art is religious in nature, it's really the introduction of a secular way of life. I mean, this is Shakespeare begins writing some of the first plays in English that are not about Jesus or about living a good and moral Christian life. Uh, that you can find morality certainly in Shakespeare's plays, but the Renaissance in England, the playwriting, the theater Renaissance, is very much a secular event. In painting, we're not only going to see religious iconography, we're also going to see uh, ancient pagan iconography, uh, paintings of the gods, Venus and Zeus and Hermes and all these sorts of characters. So, all of these cultural events are pushing us toward a Protestant revolution, and they're pushing us toward a cultural renaissance that is going to be part of our breaking up with a unified, all-controlling church uh, that's reigning in our cultural lives. And all this conflict is leaving room for Julian to think of God on her own terms, without hazarding charges of heresy belief in a wrathful God was actually not necessary to a person's spiritual life. In Julian's vision, belief in God's wrath was actually a distortion wrought by wrathful human hearts and minds. The true God was loving and gentle and homely. And to Julian, that meant, in the British sense, a simple God and a comforting God. He that made all things for love, by the same love keepeth them, and shall keep them without end. Julian compared God to a master who chooses to be personable with his servant and relatable, rather than aloof. It is better to have a personable master, says Julian, than an aloof master who gives great gifts. For verily it is the most joy that may be, as to my sight, that he that is highest and mightiest, noblest and worthiest, is lowest and meekest, homeliest and most courteous, and truly and verily this marvelous joy shall be shown to us all when we see him. God through Jesus is more like a doting parent than an author of judgment and condemnation. Julian's vision of Jesus is a bit like the Hindu conception of the god Vishnu. Vishnu is a preserver of creation who incarnates in various forms whenever existence is faced with a great crisis in order to rescue us from the brink of destruction and restore order, allowing humanity to continue on its path of spiritual evolution. Like an incarnating Tibetan Lama or the Buddha, God arrives on earth in order to serve humanity. Then said our good Lord Jesus Christ, Art thou well pleased that I suffered for thee? I said, Yea, good Lord, I thank thee. 
Yea, good Lord, blessed mayest thou be. Then said Jesus, our kind Lord, If thou art pleased, I am pleased. It is a joy, a bliss, an endless satisfying to me that ever suffered I passion for thee. And if I might suffer more, I would suffer more. In this way, Julian identifies Jesus as a kind of mother figure. Interestingly, although little is known about Julian's life, some speculate that Julian herself was a widowed mother who lost her children during the plague, and this experience, at least in part, inspired her theology. It's a compelling image, but nobody knows for sure. Jesus tells Julian that it was nothing for him to sacrifice himself on the cross beside the great love he feels for humanity. Medieval Christians, and and many Christians today as well, uh, believed in what is called substitutionary atonement. Uh, That's the idea that Christ died for our sins. Probably many of you have heard it more in in that form, not as substitutionary atonement. Uh, Although, there's a certain ring to it, doesn't it? For Julian, it sounds almost like you would find that in uh, one of those uh, spell books or something. For Julian, there would have been two ways of viewing this sacrifice. First was the classic version, also known as the ransom theory. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, humanity had more or less belonged to the devil, all living in sin. This is what we call original sin. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross broke us from this prison of sin, with Jesus dying in our place, ransoming himself, and liberating us from the devil. At the start of the second millennium, just a couple hundred years before Julian, Anselm of Canterbury came up with another approach, that humanity owed a debt of honor to God that Jesus repaid in order to prevent God from punishing us. You follow that? Humanity owed a debt of honor to God. I guess going back to the original sin, or you are all sinners, we, we owe God, we've owed God this debt that Jesus repaid in order to prevent God from punishing us. In either case, getting Jesus or believing in Jesus brought us back to God or freed us from God's punishment. There's a sort of punishing God lingering in both of these scenarios. While staying within the boundaries of this idea, Julian reframes Jesus' act as a great gift of love. We be his mead, we be his worship, we be his crown. This that I say is so great bliss to Jesus, that he setteth at naught all his travail, and his hard passion, and his cruel and shameful death. Jesus' love for us is so great that his sacrifice on the cross is small to him. He would die innumerable times again for the love of humanity. Any bodily pain or personal suffering is nothing in the light of the much greater purpose, expression, and experience of God's love. Although Julian's God was far more loving than the God the medieval church tended to talk about, I don't mean to suggest that Julian was or intended to be a radical. It might seem like a woman mystic writing her own theological treatise was in itself a radical achievement, and certainly Julian can be viewed retroactively as a feminist icon, but the church was actually fairly open to the idea of hearing from a woman in the medieval period. Julian was unique in her ability to write so eloquently of her experience, likely schooled by Benedictine nuns, but not alone. 
Dominican tertiary Catherine of Siena, for example, had a mystical marriage with Christ, experienced stigmata, which she could only see uh, through her own eyes, and at the end of her life, she lived exclusively on the Eucharist, despite her order begging her to eat more. Her letters about her mystical visions may have inspired Julian's reflections on her own visions. She also played a significant political role in the medieval papal court, serving as an ambassador for Gregory XI and sitting in the court of Urban VI, uh, our, our pope who, you know, brought about the anti-pope situation and all that business. So, women were allowed to be mystics, they were allowed to speak out in the medieval church, but what about the specific content of Julian's revelations? In her opposition to the wrath the medieval church was so fond of, was she taking a radical stance? Julian actually took pains to point out that she was very much an orthodox believer. Being orthodox and demonstrating orthodoxy, let me just give you a little definition of orthodoxy, adherence to the dominant church narrative, right? Being orthodox was not just a matter of choice in medieval Europe, it was a matter of life or death. In 1385, sheriffs were given permission to arrest Lollards, and in April 1399, William Sautry, a priest from Norwich, was arrested and brought before the fighting bishop himself, Henry Le Dispenser, on charges of rejecting the doctrine of free will, number one, not believing in the veneration of religious icons, number two, and arguing against the popular medieval practice of pilgrimage, number three. Sautry was a Lollard. I've said this word a couple times already. Let's figure out exactly what a Lollard is. The Lollard's cardinal heresy was believing that the bread and wine of the communion ritual was still bread and wine after the priest had blessed them. This was a contradiction of the traditional belief in what's called transubstantiation, which is that the bread and wine became the literal body and blood of Christ. But Lollards went much further than this. They argued that priestly celibacy was created by the Antichrist, that baptism and confession were unnecessary for salvation, and that praying to saints was a form of idolatry. Pushing England in the direction of Protestantism, they opposed all the trappings of Catholic ritual and pushed for an English translation of the Bible, which Henry VIII would eventually get behind more than a century later. But at the time, these ideas were damning and damnable. In 1409, Thomas Arundel, Archbishop of Canterbury, forbade the translation of scripture into English and placed regulations on theological teachings. And Henry IV made possession of a Bible punishable by death. In 1401, William Sautry, who had renounced lollardry, was rearrested and burned at the stake as a relapsed heretic. By all this, I don't mean to suggest that Julian was only a good medieval believer in line with the church's teachings because of fear. In her writing, Julian appears to genuinely believe that her doctrine is fully in line with church doctrine. For though the revelation was made of goodness in which was made little mention of evil, yet I was not drawn thereby from any point of the faith that Holy Church teaches me to believe. It's true that the Church had no official opposition to teaching the existence of a loving God per se. 
In fact, Clement VI, who was pope during the initial outbreak of plague in Europe, acted more in the model of Julian's loving God than the wrathful God preached at the churches that operated in his name. His doctors had advised him to sit indoors, surrounded by torches to stave off the plague, but he defied their instructions, doubting their veracity, and personally supervised the care of the sick, the pastoral care of the dying, and the burial of the dead, and he never contracted the Black Plague. He went so far as to grant a remission of sins for anyone who died of the plague, and when pogroms scapegoating the Jews broke out across the continent, Clement condemned the violence and said that the rioters had been seduced by the devil to persecute the Jews. But Clement VI also demonstrated the church's tendency to rain down vengeance and hellfire on sinners, declaring a lackluster crusade in 1343 that only got as far as a little naval attack on Smyrna, and warring with the various kings of Europe over the encroachment of secular authority on church power. And he was not above finding heretics in the people he disagreed with, declaring the enthusiastically self-punishing flagellant movement, remember those guys whacking themselves with leather throngs? He declared them heretical in 1349, actively seeking to suppress them. This may have been because the flagellants inspired populist blame-seeking, particularly against the Jews, which Clement apparently had a history of, of attempting to defend. But this shows the medieval church's inclination to, as a rule, fight fire with fire, rather than fighting anger with love. Ultimately, whether the church would have suppressed Julian's philosophy is hard to say, because her work didn't emerge until it was discovered by two small exile houses of English Benedictine nuns in the 17th century, and that was nearly 300 years after Julian wrote her revelations. Also in this he showed me a little thing, the quantity of a hazelnut, in the palm of my hand, and it was as round as a ball. I looked thereupon with eye of my understanding and thought, what may this be? And it was answered generally thus, It is all that is made. God made, loves, and keeps everything on earth. The hazelnut inspires Julian to the idea that resting in little things, that is to say, giving ourselves to the things of this earth, the little things that occupy us, does not provide spiritual rest. Only when we are brought to nothing ourselves and have no temporal thing to rest in can we rest in God. Julian came to appreciate the great in the small through her life as an anchoress. An anchorite or anchoress was a special kind of medieval ascetic. Ascetic is a term we use fairly regularly on the podcast, a sort of person who denies themselves earthly pleasures. So the anchorite or anchoress was chosen through an extensive selection process, and they played a fairly unique role in the spiritual life of their community. They lived in a small chamber attached to the church, generally around 12 feet squared, or about the size of a child's bedroom today. The chamber had three windows, and the anchorite uh, either stayed confined to the chamber or circulated between the church and the chamber, but never left the grounds. A small window or hagioscope faced into the church through which the anchorite could hear mass, receive the Eucharist, and give advice. When an anchorite or anchoress first entered their cell, there was an elaborate ceremony with the bishop attending, and psalms for the office of the dead sung as if the anchorite had died. The door through which Julian passed into her chamber was sealed up behind her. If an anchorite attempted to escape their anchor hold, they would be brought back and burned in their cell. 
They stayed even when the towns they served were pillaged or attacked by pirates. Julian was an Angaress, if not for the, her entire life, then at least after her near-death revelations, and her role as an advisor to the people of the town is recorded in Marjorie Kemp's first autobiography in the English language. Julian's loving God has repercussions beyond reframing the wrathful vengeance of the medieval church, the most significant related to the concept of sin. To begin, Julian said, our tendency to perceive that there is such a thing as sin is an error. From God's perspective, there is no sin. For a man beholdeth some deeds well done and some deeds evil, but our Lord beholdeth them not so. For as all that hath being in nature is of godly making, so is all that is done in property of God's doing. In some deep metaphysical sense, Julian says that sin itself is unreal. But I saw not sin, for I believe it hath no manner of substance, nor no part of being, nor could it be known but by the pain it is caused of. In a seeming contradiction, she goes on to say that sin is necessary, but Jesus tells her not to worry too much about it, because everything's going to be okay. But Jesus, who in this vision informed me of all that is needful to me, answered by this word and said, It behooved that there should be sin, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. God is in everything, and God does not sin. And God does not see sin. But sin is also necessary, essential, required. And because it's necessary, we shouldn't lose sleep over it. It's part of a plan that is going to come out just fine. Okay, wait a minute, huh? We gotta work this through. What did the medieval church think about sin? Well, they thought a lot, actually. There was original sin, which is the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. I mentioned that earlier. There's venial sins, uh, also known as lesser sins. Uh, I guess just now I called them that. Uh, those are spiritual misdemeanors, uh, sort of like cutting a nun off in traffic with your cart. Uh, because, because it's medieval Europe, so that's how you would have to cut a nun off in in traffic. Uh, and then there's the big personal sins, the sins that cry to heaven. There are four sins that cry to heaven. Those are murder, sodomy, oppression of the weak, and defrauding of the laborer. Most famous of all, there are the mortal or deadly sins. The doctrine of the seven deadly sins began with the 4th century monk Ev uh, Evagrius Ponticus, uh, and it reached its present version, uh, which is gluttony, lust, greed, pride, envy, wrath, and sloth, under Pope Gregory the Great in the 6th century. Gregory the Great is best known to our pagan listeners as the pope who instigated the missions to convert Europe's pagans. If there's one thing the medieval Catholic Church knew for certain, it's that sin absolutely existed. In fact, it existed so hard, there was arguably more sin than most anything else in human endeavor. Clearly, Julian doesn't want to say that there's no such thing as sin. She has no appetite for heresy, after all. As the scholar Dennis Turner points out, she's caught between her revelation that sin is nothing to God and the church's teaching that sin and punishment are a central concern for humanity. Julian had actually recorded her divine visions or showings twice. The first version, the short text, allowed this paradox to rest largely unexplored. Then, over the next 20 years after her near-death experience, Julian worked through the problem posed by sin being both necessary and unreal in what came to be called her long text. 
Julian is adamant that there is nothing in her revelations that opposes the teachings of the church, because these revelations are from God and the church is of God, and so that would be impossible. Sin and love are perpetually at war with one another, and although love's victory is a foregone conclusion, yet sin torments us in the meanwhile. In his Inferno, Dante described the seven deadly sins as corruptions or disorders of love. Lust, gluttony, and greed were excessive love. Sloth, uh, which Gregory, Pope Gregory the Great had joined with sorrow, was a deficiency of love. We often don't think of sloth that way. We think of it as, as like laying around. Um, but the Gregory the Great, uh, when he pared us down from ten sins to seven, uh, put sorrow and sloth together. So, we have to think of it more like sloth is actually more like despair, depression. Um, it's an, an unwillingness to get up. Wrath, envy, and pride were perversions of love directing at causing others pain. You see? So sloth is a deficiency of love. Uh, lust, gluttony, greed, too much love. Wrath, envy, pride, distortions of love, which end up causing pain rather than pleasure or good. For Julian, these corruptions or perversions are a departure from reality. Love is all that is actually real. These seeming distortions of love are just misperceptions or illusions through which the sinner loses sight of God's perfect love, which is the reality of the universe. To better explain this situation, Julian uses the metaphor of a master and his servant. The Lord loves his servant and sends him off to do an errand, and in his haste, the servant falls. The servant, not only he goeth, but suddenly he starteth and runneth in great haste for love to do his lord's will. And anon he falleth into a slade and taketh full great hurt. And then he groaneth and moaneth and waileth and struggleth, but he neither may rise nor help himself by no manner of way. And of all this, the most mischief that I saw him in was failing of comfort, for he could not turn his face to look upon his loving lord, for which to him was full near, and whom is full comfort. But as a man that was feeble and unwise for the time, he turned his mind to his feeling and endured woe. Our lives are lived running for and after God's perfect love, working to discover and manifest it as much as possible. Through our imperfections, as Dante says, our quest for love can become perverted and we can lose sight of the God we were running to serve and the fact that this loving God is right beside us, ready to help us, if only we would look his way. Instead, we choose to dwell in pain. As Turner says, we can weave the illusion separating us from God so thick and deep that we become fully engulfed in it and completely lose sight of the ever-present divine love. Projects of violence and control and acquisition and greed can replace our true spiritual mission on this earth to give love and feel love and know God through our compassion for others and the compassion of others for us. A comparison with Hinduism helps again here. In Brahmanic teaching, the human suffers from an inability or failure to realize that Brahman is Atman, and Atman is Brahman. Or, to put that another way, if you haven't taken my world ritual class, that the individual soul is the universe, and the universe is the individual soul. We suffer because of our illusion that we are separate from all 
things. Our deep interconnectedness is the true reality, just as for Julian, our deep embeddedness in God's love, a love that connects us, is the real truth. But sin is not only illusion. It is also necessary. It is a necessary illusion. In the midst of her showings focused on the face of the crucified Christ, Julian hears a voice asking, or perhaps tempting her, to look away from the dying Jesus on his cross with the blood pouring down his face and look toward heaven. But Julian refuses. If she cannot go to heaven by Jesus, she does not want to go. She chooses to stay with Jesus' pain and suffering over looking upon heaven itself. The earthly and temporal parts of Julian that longed for the comforts of heaven, wanted to look away from Jesus' pain. But the inward, spiritual aspect of Julian, existing in a perpetual state of peace and love, preferred to hold its attention on her Lord's profound suffering. The lowest, the humblest, the suffering, draw out our love, which is the highest part of us, and the true meaning of a state of heaven. Heaven is a perfect expression of love, not a place of creature comforts. But if sin is the cause of pain, and sin is an illusion brought on by a misperception of the absence of God's love, why would Jesus, God's Son, ever need love from us? Allow your humble host to speculate. The Gospel writers Mark and Matthew report that on the cross, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the opening lines of the 22nd Psalm. While there are many interpretations of this line and this moment, one argument holds that God the Father turned away from his Son because in this moment, Jesus had taken on the sins of the world and God was too pure to behold them. Dwelling on the crucified Christ in his moment of spiritual thirst, Julian's love rushes into the void created by the illusion of sin. Sin the illusion of the absence of God's love is the cause of a pain that elicits compassion and love. Our capacity to love is greatest when we love into the voids left by evil. Evil, suffering, and sin exist to open our hearts to become channels for God's love and care in the deepest ways we are capable of. After Julian turned away from heaven, and held her gaze on her suffering Lord, Jesus changed his countenance and showed the woman, sick on the point of death, a look of cheer. And all suffering, his, hers, the suffering of the world, ended in that exchange. We suffer in sin and pain, said Julian, and we'll be blessed with good cheer and joy for our suffering.
Let's take a look at our sources today. We've got the Shewings of Julian of Norwich, introduction by Georgia Ronan Crampton, Dennis Turner's Julian of Norwich, a theologian, Marian Maskulak's Julian of Norwich and the God of No Blame and No Wrath, also the Catholic Encyclopedia at catholic.org, and Stephen Christ's Lecture 29 on the Black Death at historyguide.org. I hereby adjourn and declare closed this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors until such a time as we get together and do it again. Until such a time as we get together, virtually, or in person, and do it again. Thank you for joining us for the second in our plague series. Uh, a reminder that uh, we will be bringing you our regularly scheduled episode in the conspiracy series next week, and that episode was pre-recorded, um, so there won't be any order of confessors uh, on on the next episode. Um, and also a word of warning: uh, depending on the length of the uh, quarantine, the, the shelter-in-place orders in the state of Maryland, um, we're, we'll be recording perhaps in this fashion for maybe one, maybe two more episodes. Uh, so it's possible that our regular season uh, may involve some, shall we say, asynchronous uh, editing of, of uh, folks into the episode. Um, but I, I am just going to continue on with our regular schedule. I, I think that's important. I think if we're all stuck in our homes, the very worst thing that could happen is uh, folks like me who, who do a podcast for uh, for our communities of, of listeners and friends. Uh, should, the worst thing we could do is, is uh, quit doing our thing because of the quarantine. There's no good reason for that. Um, and, and it's also the case that you, you may have, have heard on the episode uh, that we've had to buy some extra equipment. Um, well, we're doing our best to sort of um, make things work. The, the extra equipment is is uh, being used to, to sort of circulate microphones around the shore. I, I met Olivia, sort of like some sort of, uh, I don't know, deep throat situation, Watergate situation. We met at the reservoir uh, by the college because we can't get on the campus right now. Uh, the college has been uh, transferred into a coronavirus testing site. Uh, so there's a tent up and, you know, public safety officials and things directing people to be tested for the virus. So we met at this reservoir, which is uh, by the college, and then I opened my trunk, and Olivia, Olivia reached in and, and pulled the mic out and uh, <laughs> carried on uh, back to her house. Uh, but we were cautious. We, we did not get more than six feet away from each other, and uh, I rubbed down the microphone with alcohol. Uh, some of you may be thinking this is extreme, uh, but it really isn't. I mean, uh, we have no way of knowing who's infected or under what circumstances. And, and uh, if you're not willing to, to do these things for yourself, then do them for others, uh, because you don't know if you're carrying around the virus. There's, there's really no way for us to know for sure. Um, and then this social distancing, it's, it's unpleasant. I think it's, it's uh, definitely got some economic impact on, on the culture, and, and uh, it's a little psychologically difficult. We're meant as a species to meet together, be together, interact, touch, um, but, but we've got to hold on to these, these practices uh, until the virus passes so that we can uh, enjoy each other's company again and uh, still have our loved ones with us as, as much as possible, uh, especially people who are uh, in weaker situations, although I'm hearing, hearing stories about folks who um, are, are not necessarily compromised to immune-wise who find themselves in uh, dire straits. Uh, so do be cautious, be safe out there. Um, I have great affection for, for all of our confessors, I, I really do, and I, I want you guys to, to be safe, stay indoors, listen to podcasts, uh, and, and do the best you can to, uh, to keep your hands clean. I look forward to bringing you 
one more episode in this plague series and to and to continue to speak with you into the year. However, we have to do that. Uh, you will continue to hear from me and, and all the alchemical actors in one form or another uh, on each of these episodes. So thank you for listening, and we look forward to speaking with you again here on Occult Confessions.